now you have to entertain me because apparently I'm cranky. I don't know how I feel about that. About you entertaining me? About you being cranky. Oh, um, it's not actually cranky. I think it's existential crisis because I watched the Bo Burnham inside. I mean, it's appropriate. We are talking about death today. I just, I just hope he's doing okay. <laughs> you doing all right, Bo? Like, uh, we're all here for you, buddy. <laughs> I mean, give me a call. I'll tell you a joke. Hello and welcome to Active Listeners with Mike and Shane. Each week we interview guests about their goals and expectations as artists, their artistic expression, and the all-around nature of the artist's lifestyle. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Is there a de facto artist lifestyle? Well, that's one of the things we try to uncover. Performers, visual artists, and musicians, Mike and I would like to talk to you about what you do, why you do it, and what that art means for your community. Please follow Active Listeners on Facebook or the Twitter and join in on the conversation. Peace. When I die, give what's left of me away to children and old men that wait to die. And if you need to cry, cry for your brother walking the street beside you. And when you need me, put your arms around anyone and give them what you need to give to me. I want to leave you something, something better than words or sounds. Look for me in the people I've known or loved, and if you cannot give me away, at least let me live on your eyes and not on your mind. You can love me most by letting hands touch hands, by letting bodies touch bodies, and by letting go of children that need to be free. Love doesn't die. People do. So when all that's left of me is love, give me away. Epitaph by Merritt Malloy. That was beautiful, Mike. Thank you. And welcome to Active Listeners with Mike. And Shane. And this week, we are going to talk about death again. We did it last season, a little bit, kind of. We always talk about some dark shit. I mean... It's been a dark week, especially for you, young sir. For me, what did I do? You went ahead and, and exposed your artist's mind to Bo Burnham's special inside. I did do that. Despite I did. every warning you were given by anyone that was depressed and an artist. Yeah, everyone was like, <laughs> oh, you need to watch this. But like, maybe you don't want to watch this. And then I was like, yeah, I'll put it off. I'll put it off. It'll be there. And then I watched it. And then I watched it again. <laughs> And that's kind of telling, I think, uh, just just because of just the how powerful that need to kind of just be allowed to feel shitty is, especially in entertainment. Yeah, you know, I I wasn't planning on necessarily using Bo Burnham's inside as an analogy for my life, but I'm going to <laughs> because the moment that sticks out to me is his song white woman instagram and when you're watching when you're watching it you're understanding the sarcasm and the the joking nature of what he's talking about and then he has this breakdown moment where it's no longer poking fun but acknowledging that there is a life outside the four by three ratio of instagram 
And just because a post is cliche doesn't mean the feelings behind it aren't substantial and aren't real. And he sings a verse about a woman who lost her mother and is on Instagram talking about how she misses her mother and, you know, give dad a hug and a kiss for me, implying that she has lost both parents, but is still fighting and still striving in this world. So yeah, like it's leads right into what we're talking about today. For sure. And, and grieving is, it's universal, even if sometimes we turn it into Instagram posts. Yeah, we've, we've done a lot of flattening of the emotional experience. And in response to that, the response we as a culture have to death has not been a great one has not been positive is often hid from right also what we all believe about death is kind of used as something to separate us even though everybody's going to do it everyone is going to die that's the one thing everybody will be guaranteed to do it's the great reset right it's a great reset even even in that we've found ways to tribalize you know and like uh it's just interesting. It's an interesting thing to be sure. Yeah, you know, I definitely think back to being a kid and, you know, when you're younger, you often have to learn to deal with death, maybe from a pet, right? It's not even uh, a family member that has passed away, but a goldfish or a hamster. And you have to start understanding and digesting that you as like a three, four or five year old, at some point, you're no longer going to be there. And at that age, you're just getting used to being there. Yeah, yeah, you're just kind of like, coming into awareness and awareness that's recallable, you know, you're, you're, you're developing long term memories and, and becoming aware of the world around you in different ways. So yeah, it's, it can be rough to have to confront that. And I've seen it in like, in like my son, he will use the word dead. Is he dead? Is the, you know, is the, is the bee dead? Is, you know, the ant that got stepped on dead? There's a little bit of like, he understands that dead is different from alive, but but like how much does he understand yeah, what a lie you know, is? And then how, how much do I read into any of that and have to say, okay, well, now I have to talk about death with my kid. You know, uh, it's, it's something that is equally as frightening to speak about as it is ridiculous we don't. Yeah, and I never felt like death wasn't a conversation that I was allowed to have. It was something that I was taught about and then we just moved on. Like, this is going to happen to you someday boom done deal you, you, you'll figure out how to deal with it when it happens on a grand scale yeah i feel like it's not taboo it's uncomfortable yeah you know it's not like politics it's it's just it's i think it is something that there's a quiet acknowledgement of and that it's in, in, inevitable and it does in nothing you can do you know prevent it so we just ignore it so who are we going to talk to today shane today we are going to bring on uh, old friend of mine, Jess Schermeister, who went to college with me and we went to college together is probably a better way to say that because <laughs> the world does not revolve around me beyond popular belief. It doesn't. It doesn't. And they are going to come on and talk to us about a little death positivity. You know, they are training to be a death doula and 
hopefully they're going to explain that to at least me because I know that that is a term that I am not particularly familiar with. I mean, I wasn't until we decided to do this episode. And did a little research. <laughs> That's right. Had a funny reaction, which we'll talk about later. <laughs> but before we get to that interview, uh, Mike, do you want to do some really ridiculous, silly, cliched Patreon plug? Uh, no, no, I don't. Um... <laughs> Great. So that being said, we are going to go to a slight break and we'll bring on Jess Sharemeister. Hello and welcome back. And today we have with us Jessica Sharemeister, who is training to be a death doula, who is working on their master's in social work. Is that correct? Yep. Yep. Fantastic. So uh, Mike and I would love you to go ahead, do us a favor, introduce yourself, let us know what pronouns you use and give us some sort of factor detail about you that will spark infinite conversation. <laughs> Pressure. Uh, <laughs> okay, uh, well, my pronouns are she, they. I prefer Jess over Jessica, but Jessica's fine. I guess an interesting thing about me, well, I, I currently live in Pittsburgh. I'm from Iowa originally by way of Virginia. It's been a weird, weird little journey. Um, but I'm working on my third master's degree, actually, and I completely switched fields. So there's that. Yeah, I mean, when... When I met you, we were working on on, on Shakespeare master degrees mm -hmm. at similar times. Yep. So you've completely shifted. How how was that? How has that been? It was so good. It was really scary at first because I have a lot of classmates, obviously, who have like undergrad degrees in social work or at least have been working in the field for a few years. And then I'm just like, hi, everyone, I have two theater degrees. <laughs> <laughs> so I was worried that there was going to be a significant learning curve, but I'm flourishing I think I am confident enough to say that it's it's kind of something that comes naturally to me and I think it's finally the right fit that's great what 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 was the catalyst for going into social work well I had a few bad experiences one right after the other pretty much in theater and I just I also I can't personality wise and stamina wise I can't do what so many theater artists have to do where they work day jobs and then they rehearse in the evening. Like I can't, I don't have the energy for that anymore. I can't do it. So that was another thing too. Like I knew that I wasn't driven enough to try to make it a full-time actual career. And I just, I was tired. <laughs> I was tired. But it sounds like all of that theater work while tiring prepared you for a lot of this. I mean, I always feel like having any sort of experience in theater just kind of prepares you for almost anything the world will throw at you or anything you mm -hmm. decide to sort of throw at the world, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's very true. When I was just thinking about going into this program at the University of Pittsburgh, I attended like an information session or something, actually December 2019, <laughs> right, right before everything happened. Um, and I, I did, I got brave and I asked the professors who were there, I was like, do you think it's possible for me to do this given I have zero social work background whatsoever? And one of the professors said, absolutely, because the main thing that I already have, maybe as a result of my like 15 years in theater was empathy and compassion. And that's the most important thing to have. And that's the thing that can't be taught. So she said, 
you know, you have to take foundational classes and you have to learn like the basics of social work, but you already have what is needed. And then I felt infinitely better after that because that that has proven to be true definitely yeah to say that there's any there's only one way to to be a performer would be a foolish thing to do but i i do believe that a key element to being a performer of any kind is is to have a level of empathy Mm -hmm. that i think has helped me in everything that i've done outside of theater as well as my theater training yeah for sure Mm -hmm. yeah definitely you're originally uh you're from iowa uh-huh. <laughs> and you then you were in Virginia for a while and then and now you're in Pittsburgh. Yep. Uh, you know, <laughs> that's those are like all, that's just as different as as switching <laughs> from, you know, your your Shakespeare <laughs> degree into social work. So uh, what's that been like while also making all of these changes otherwise? Yeah, it was it was an interesting transition both times. I went to Virginia for grad school number one, which was um, Mary Baldwin Shakespeare and Performance Program. And then after that, I, I met my husband a year after I graduated with my MFA, and he is from Pittsburgh. So he was finishing up a PhD at UVA around the same time. And when he graduated, neither one of us had anything tying us to Virginia anymore, but we also didn't have any prospects anywhere else. So we moved up here pretty much to uh, live with his parents for a little while, take advantage of some free rent. And he got a good job as a data scientist at Pitt. And we bought a house about three years ago. And now I will never move again because I've moved too many times. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't that what you were doing this weekend? Oh, I was just on vacation. (laughs) Oh, gotcha. Where'd you go to go on vacation? I went to Iowa. Oh, visiting my grandma. Yeah. <laughs> what's Iowa like? I've never been. Uh, <laughs> Do tell. Uh, is that, is that one like? of the potato states? Like they just it's grow corn. potatoes? Oh, corn. That's okay. Idaho. You're thinking Idaho. Idaho. We do corn and hogs mostly. <laughs> corn and hogs. It's a, it's a slower pace. I guess I'll say that. Even just like driving. <laughs> Iowa drivers drive so slowly, especially compared to Pittsburgh, which is nuts. And people go 20 over any speed limit, any area. And then in Iowa, they're just like tooting along at like 24 miles per hour, not a care in the world. <laughs> in Virginia, they almost go exactly the speed limit. So basically your uh-huh. moving has been based on how people drive. Yeah. <laughs> it's gotten more intense as you've gone along. So I, I'm not going to lie. One of the big reasons that I wanted to ask you onto our podcast is because I had never heard of what you call a death doula. Mm-hmm. That is something that I have never heard of ever in my life neither had i actually i had a really funny reaction when he asked me about <laughs> having a death duel on the show i was like what no 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 and he was like what do you mean no like what do you mean and he <laughs> i had a really strong reaction and he was like i was like what like weird like crystals and like like all and he's like no i'm like oh well what are you talking about <laughs> yeah i'm i'm also still pretty new in it I only heard about it maybe the end of last year. One of my new grad school friends mentioned the term to me and I was like, oh, that sounds, well, first, first, I also kind of had kind of a strong reaction where I was like, oh, that sounds like a really rough job. I was like, that sounds super emotional and rough. So first things first, a death doula is a non-medical support person who aids someone who is most likely actively dying, but 
they don't have to be dying actively. You know, we're all dying technically. Yeah, right. We're all actively dying. We are all actively dying. Just some people are uh, dying sooner. So um, non-medical support person who helps the person who is dying and also their friends and family kind of get through the transition. Um, so most people are familiar with a birth doula. So it's, it's essentially the same thing. So a birth doula is also like an advocate for the birthing person, again, a non-medical role, but they're there to make sure that the birthing person's wishes are seen through, you know, they aren't taken advantage of because it's dying and giving birth are both big things, right? Those are, those are big life changes and can be overwhelming for the person directly involved. So a doula is, is just there to lend whatever kind of support the person needs. It, it can also be called a death companion. We're there to give grief support, um, to help with things like a living will or advanced care directives if those are not already done, helping facilitate or plan memorial services or vigils. It depends on entirely what the person hiring you wants, pretty much. Gotcha. So when you talk about a lot of that, where my head goes and probably incorrectly is, is what I understand as hospice. Mm -hmm. And so is there a relationship there or is this uh, a very different thing in that world? There's definitely a relationship. Yeah. And I know that some hospices, their on-staff social worker does all of this anyway, and they don't, they don't have like a, you know, an extra title of a death doula or whatever. But yeah, there's absolutely over overlap with hospice because when you're in hospice, you are very aware that your time is limited. So these things become more immediate and important. And a death doula can help the person who is dying, but also help their loved ones kind of get through the process as well. So I just did a certification program online. And one of the things that it talked about was an example of being an advocate for the client or the patient is, for instance, if you have someone who has a terminal cancer diagnosis, let's say that they're, I mean, they could be in any age really, but usually it's a lot more shocking when they're younger. And you're in the room with them and their family's there and their brother just cannot stop crying. And it's upsetting the person with the diagnosis. So for instance, the death doula can ask the brother to step outside with them, just kind of like help collect themselves because they're upsetting. We know it's upsetting for everyone, but you know, <laughs> keeping in mind that the person who is dying probably a bit more upsetting for them and just making sure that the environment it doesn't make them more upset I guess that that was an example that really stuck out to me as something to do because I was like oh I never thought of that you know because it is it's hard and we in this country we don't talk about end of life or dying we just we just let it happen and then we yeah are in a coffin and then we're buried and then it's done but it's so much more complicated than that yeah what are your hopes for your future doing this? Like what, what do you, what do you think you can, what do you have to bring to death dueling? <laughs> um, and, you know, but in, on a serious note, you know, what drives you to want to want to be this type of person for, for people? Uh, I, I've been reading a lot of books since I found out about the term and a, one book that was really influential 
for me was called um, Being Mortal by Atul Gawande, um, who is a physician in the U.S. and has been for about 20 years, I think. And he writes about end of life from a medical perspective in the U.S. and, and really points out how physicians are not usually taught to have these conversations with people. They come in and they give a diagnosis and then they leave. <laughs> and it's like, and, you know, the, people are told you have four months to live. There's nothing else we can do. Okay, bye. I mean, yeah, when you say it so starkly, you know. Right. Like they might, you know, they're hopefully if they're a good physician, they're asking if you have any questions and trying to help you of course. through it a little bit. But there's not, there's that gap. There is not someone specifically there for emotional support in that time. And personally, I think that I am someone who has the right kind of temperament to help someone with that. I have, I've never been afraid of death or negatively affected by it, I guess I should say, because the, the two major deaths in my life so far have been my grandfathers, both of whom I was incredibly close with, and they both died from cancer and they had, they had pretty different deaths. So my first grandpa who died, died in a hospital on a ventilator, completely unconscious. And it was harder for me as an 11 year old to see him on the ventilator than it was to see him after he had died with all of the tubes cleared out and everything. Even as an 11 year, 11 year old, I was like, he's better now. Mm-hmm. He's not, you know, we're not forcing him to stay alive through all of this pain and he's not even conscious. You know, it was, it, it was a little traumatizing, Sure. but I felt better once he had been able to pass. And my other grandfather did die in hospice. He had stomach cancer actually twice. The first time he had the majority of his stomach removed and it went away and then it came back. And he said, I'm not doing chemo again. He refused. He said he hated it. He hated how it made it feel. And he was just, he was ready to go. So he just kind of let it take its course and he died in hospice. And they, they had a social worker there to help with all of the planning and everything. Yeah. It sounds like a lot of what you're doing is almost like a live action therapy. Mm -hmm. while it's happening in person, being able to be that mediator in the moment who can navigate this difficult situation when the people in it can't. Yeah, yeah. You know, they're an outsider, so they're not as emotionally invested. And it's, it's, it, it kind of removes the burden from the dying person and their families. You know, if, if they're overwhelmed with everything that's going on, they don't want to have to figure out if whatever kind of burial the um, dying person wants is legal in their state. That's something I can definitely do and, and get all of the paperwork taken care of and everything. And they can focus on spending time together instead of worrying about all of the logistics. This might be slightly off topic, but can you give us an example of a type of burial that someone might want that might be considered illegal? That I've never heard of that. Yeah, so that's another thing in this country. We don't talk about the, the burial options that we have. We, we, ha- we think we have two options. We think that we have cremation or just traditional steel coffin burial. But there are so many others. And it, it does vary country to country and state to state. But there's open air cremation. There's, uh, I can't remember the term now. There, there's a kind of cremation that's done with water called hydro something. There is, there's actually a Japanese practice. I should have looked up the word ahead of time where the cremation is not done in the way that we do it in the US where the body is completely broken down. The temperature is a little lower. So there are larger bone fragments, for instance, and 
part of the ceremony for them in um, this Japanese practice is using chopsticks to pick out the larger pieces of bone and put them in, in an urn. So like that's a different kind of cremation. You can be, well, you can have your body donated to quote unquote science. So you can um, mm. help medical students learn. You can donate your body to what's called a body farm, which they use to study forensics. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I like the, I, I always like people's reactions when I say body farm. Body farm. Yeah, th- I love body farms. They're dope. They're so cool. Just read about one. It's so cool because they they have these different scenarios where they put corpses and and then police officers or dogs that are being trained to find bodies or forensic scientists study the decomposition in different environmental settings. Oh, okay, okay. So yeah, it helps them figure out when there is a body found, like how long they may have been like decomposed. How long it decomposes in like concrete versus glue or right. something. Right, right. <laughs> glue. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. Like, yeah, if you put a body in the trunk of a car in the sunlight for 30 days, what happens to it? Like kind of Ooh, thing. Can't imagine anything good. Right? I know. I don't. I would like to donate myself they to They don't that. smell good. <laughs> but I think the idea of them is so cool <laughs> i just think it's it's really it's really it interesting very, it is interesting it is very interesting you have um, so many options but the they thought the uh, thoughts and ideas of death are so personal right so like mm-hmm. immediately my brain were, was like oh yeah i definitely want to do that <laughs> <laughs> i've always wanted to do the tree pod thing yeah there's also the tree pod uh-huh mm-hmm mm-hmm Cause yeah. that's Me just you like that's yes, please that <laughs> right? yeah 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 <laughs> yeah yeah. There's also more natural buri- burials where you um actually decompose into the earth. Mm-hmm. You're not put in a steel coffin, mm-hmm. so you're basically just wrapped in like a 100% natural cotton shroud, and you just naturally decompose. And 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 it's on purpose, and you you haven't been like mm-hmm. deposited in the woods. Right. <laughs> there's a specific kind of <laughs> funeral home. Yeah. Because there's a way to achieve that. It's just you got to piss off the right people, right? For slight clarification, <laughs> his wife runs and does a murder podcast. She so, does. so half of my brain is always in like always there. Right. Is always so, in true for crime. For instance, when, when a victim is found, then something like a body farm could help. Right, right the people investigating figure out what happened to them and find the person responsible. So another thing that's almost impossible in American culture to separate from death is religion. Mm-hmm. So uh, how, where, where does the death duel fall in, and also preparing someone for their own personal ideas of death in that, that world? Again, it depends entirely on what the client wants. And death doulas can be pretty much anyone. In in the U.S., you don't need a specific certification to be a doula because it is a non-medical role. So there are members of the clergy who are doulas. There are members of other religious institutions who uh, work as death doulas. There are atheists. And it, you know, as far as I'm concerned, I, I don't really have any sort of religious ties and I'm barely barely spiritual (laughs) (laughs) so for me 
it's just, if I'm meeting with someone, we would talk about this right away. You know, we would, I would say, do you have any specific religious requests? Basically, like, is there a specific way you need to be buried? Or, you know, because some people believe that if you're cremated, then you can't come back. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and approaching it from a non-judgmental standpoint, too. Mm-hmm. And in social work, we have a saying that is, you meet the client where they are. So even though I'm an atheist, if someone who, for instance, maybe is Catholic were to hire me and were to say, I want Catholic funeral, I want burial in a steel coffin in this specific cemetery, it's not, it's not my job to argue with them and be like, actually, this kind of burial would be better for you. <laughs> you know, it's, that's right, absolutely right. inappropriate. Um, and it's just, it just you know, there, feels, there it boundaries. sounds inappropriate. It sounds right. kind of yeah, dirty. Yeah, yeah. Like this yeah. person's dying. Yeah. Like, actually, you know what? You should actually consider <laughs> that your beliefs have been wrong for a long time. Right, right, right. Like, I certainly have opinions about Christianity. Of course. Uh, I was raised Lutheran. So I'm a lot more familiar with the Lutheran church, but, but it's, it's not my place to talk someone out of their religion in their final mm. moments, mm-hmm. especially, oh, especially, yeah. you know, if they require a priest to read them their final rights, obviously the death doula is within their rights to say, I'm not comfortable doing that and refer them to someone else. But just in general, it's, it's, it's what the client wants mm-hmm. and you don't, you don't push your own personal agenda onto them. What, is your role or what would your role? Cause I know that you're not actively doing this right now, but mm-hmm. training to do this. Uh, what would a death doula's role be after th- that person has passed? Because it sounds like you're also creating this sort of connection and bond with the family. Mm-hmm. So is your, is the role of the death doula specifically for the person that's passing? And then when that person passes, you sort of separate yourself from the family or or would you help the family continue with that struggle with dealing with that death Mm -hmm. yeah again it depends on the client too but I I mean I am more inclined to keep in touch with the family and make sure that they're grieving and processing appropriately but if you have a client who doesn't really have a support system and may it may be alone in this process then yeah, the, it, it pretty much is over when, when they die. But if you're working with the family, it's, in my opinion, it's better to keep them involved in the whole process as long as the client wants that. And, you know, I'm not just going to be like, okay, peace out. Good luck. <laughs> Figure it out. You know, check back in like a month later, six months later, and just make sure that they don't need any extra support or if they need if they do need extra support, helping them connect with maybe a grief counselor. So not necessarily doing it yourself, but helping them get right. to the resources to help themselves. Right, right. Cool. Yep. It looked like Mike was thinking. I was. <laughs> I, have, I have some things written down. I didn't know what I wanted to go into yet. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it seems like the, the key thing here is, like you said before, is like empathy. It's empathy and it's service, right? You're, you're, it's mm-hmm. a service. Why, why do you think our culture has decided to put this work secondary? Why, why are we, why, why is it when you go to the doctor and they, they give you your terminal? I mean, yes, I, I'm going to say I firmly believe that like 
in most cases, they're going to have like, oh, these, this is a list of people you can talk to. And, you know, the, you know, the best of the hospitals are going to do that work. They're going to tell you who to go see. But like, why aren't you working in the hospital? Why, you know what I mean? Like, why aren't, mm-hmm. why, why aren't the, why isn't the doctor coming in, helping you understand your medical diagnosis and then introducing you to Jess you know what I mean? To like carry mm-hmm. on this conversation. Why has this been divorced from the medical side of, of dying? That's a great question. And I, I don't know, but I think it's largely that as, as a culture in the States, we are uncomfortable talking about death and dying, even though it's inevitable. It's the one thing that's going to happen to everyone. Yeah. Everyone's going to die at some point. It just depends on how and when. And I don't know what it's like to be a physician, obviously, but I assume that they're usually pretty busy. <laughs> and and also it goes back to training too, where they, they don't get the training in med school to handle these kinds of conversations themselves. So you're right. So there should be a consultant brought in. And, I, yeah. and in some cases, there definitely are. So I... Mm-hmm. I wasn't, my last internship was not in death and dying, but I did work as part of an addiction medicine team in a hospital and we were a consult service. So if someone would come in either with a substance use injury or not, or they just have a history, we would get consulted to come speak to them. But the, the attending physician or a nurse has to put in that consult specifically. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I hope that happens at most hospitals where there is an on-staff social worker who can talk to you about what you might need. And there's also at that hospital, I was at West Penn hospital in Pittsburgh. They have um, a wonderful palliative care team that I shadowed a couple of times and they, that's also their job too. So they have nurses on staff that come in and they, um, you know, ask you how your pain is, if they can help you manage it better. Um, They have an on-staff social worker who helps again with a lot of these kind of death doula things. Mm-hmm. But that's really only when they're in the hospital. Mm-hmm. So if someone elects to be in their home, then they don't really have anyone there automatically. Mm-hmm. Or or they might just prefer to not be in the hospital environment because mm-hmm. that's not the a fun environment case. to be in. <laughs> Yeah, right. yeah. And that's the immediate case. Those are people that know. Oh, okay. Well, it's it's coming, right. and I have to be in a hospital. But you know, then you're going to have people that have to live with it for months, and no, they're not hospitalized, and they're just kind of like mm-hmm. in the real world. Yep. And I'd also be interested to hear about the how you sort of compensate and how you you deal and and talk with these people that are going through this struggle, and especially for people who know that it's coming and have a long stretch mm-hmm. to sort of deal with it. And if they talk to you at the beginning of this process and say, you know, this is what I want, this is what I want done, this is how I want it done. And then as it gets closer and closer, a sort of, I, I don't know, a, a fear sets in and, and they start to not want these things anymore. As the, the person helping them through this, do you meet them where they are or meet them where they were? Definitely meet them where they are. But, but in that, in that case, there would, there would be a conversation about the emotional stages of the dying process for the dying. And that something like that sudden fear or anxiety is, is normal. And that, you know, it's also normal to feel frustrated and angry that you don't have any control over it. 
but um, just, yeah, meeting them where they are, making sure that what they want can be accomplished. And if it can't, then you find an alternative. Do you use your, your art degrees and all of your past knowledge and other than the empathy that you gained in that, do you, do you actively use that sometimes? Really? No. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, I don't. I mean, it, it definitely helps me talk to people, you know, I'm, I, and I'm in, I'm so comfortable in front of a crowd. So it's not like I'm going to go into a room. Someone's family's there and I'm going to get nervous to talk in front of five people. Cause I've talked in front of way more people than that. I'm a bit more, I don't want to say extroverted, but social maybe than some other people might've been. So switching gears a little bit, more like a lot, but kind of not because we kind of got back into talking about your past as, as an artist. Are you still creating on your own? Are you, uh, do you like to draw? I see you have some tattoos. Are you a visual art, you know, uh, maker or just an enthusiast? You know, do you, do you still find time to work on little things like that? Uh, I don't do a whole lot of that. No. Oh, I, Honestly, I've never considered myself to be a creative person. I don't, okay. I can't do any sort of drawing, painting, graphic design. I can't, I don't know how to do any of that. I can't draw either. Mike's got all the drawing <laughs> talent in this duo. Yeah. You know, there's, He's got it for there. both of us. We're out there. Yeah. Yeah. I, it is a little, I, I've kind of gone through my own grieving process a little bit at leaving theater for what is probably permanently because I think that that is the best move for me. But I certainly miss, you know, my favorite part about theater work was directing and specifically directing Shakespeare and looking at the text and the meter and hearing how it sounds and the rhythm. And it was just so, that was so fun to help people get through that. And also because, you know, we all know with Shakespeare, people are like, oh, that's so hard. Like, well, it's not as hard as you think it is. <laughs> you get over a couple hurdles and it's right, right. It's not it's not a completely different language. You know, sure, it's mostly sure. our current language. Um, and helping people understand that was was fun. But yeah, I don't I don't think I'm gonna ever be able to have an active role in theater again, unfortunately. Well, it sounds like you're the, the way you talk about, you know, this next step in your life, it does it sounds like you're seeking that out in, in other ways in life, which is perfectly healthy and perfectly, like, yeah, of course. It's when we can't do the thing that we love doing, whatever it is, mm-hmm. you know, that you, that you truly kind of, and you starve yourself. And I think that it sounds like you've got plenty of- Sustenance. <laughs> inspiration and, and yeah, and going into this next, next step. And, uh-huh. Just yeah. you know, go see some shows. That's fine. <laughs> I'm so bad at that too. I'm tired. We all, at aren't night. we all? Aren't we all? Yeah, I know, right? Like it's I like go to something that starts at seven o'clock. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I could definitely be better at that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so to sort of open this conversation up about being able to talk about what we want at the end of our life, if we do get the option to choose that, um, what are you looking for at the, at the end of your days, if you get that choice? That's a great question. And you'd think I would have a fully prepared answer, but I do not. I, it's important to me to be able to donate my body somewhere. 
Um, so like I said, either a body farm or something, something that will be helpful. Medical students can practice operating. I don't know, you know, like absolutely donating my organs. Um, cause I'm not, I don't need any of it anymore. You know, right. Someone else can have it. Yep. It's the main one goes. I mean, right. <laughs> I'm not using it. <laughs> so as for like services, I, let me give you an example here. Funerals are often very sad, obviously. And I get that and I understand why, but I wish that we had, that we focused more on the life of the person and less on the fact that they're now gone. So with my first grandpa who died, he, his funeral was at our little family Lutheran church and half the state was there. Like my, he knew everybody. My grandma didn't even know half the people who were there. (laughs) They'd come up to her and she'd be like, I don't know how you know Kenny. So there were just a ton of people there. And our pastor has known my grandmother since they were both kids. They grew up across the street from each other. So he knew my grandpa extremely well. And his eulogy was so funny. And it was so touching because he talked about how cranky and sarcastic grandpa always was. And he was a church deacon, but he was always like a real hard ass. And like, <laughs> it was so, I remember laughing and that's the only funeral I've ever laughed at. And that was really nice because he was, you know, he's so much, he's so much more than just no longer existent. And it was just so, it was so beautiful and moving. And he even said, <laughs> I think he started the eulogy with, is this heaven? No, it's Iowa. <laughs> from the field of dream but that was just such a special moment and so for for myself I would love I would love for whatever my final celebration is to to be more of a celebration Mm. you know people Mm -hmm. are welcome to grieve obviously but also talk about how cool I was (laughs) (laughs) you know tell jokes share stories that's that's also really important to me too I'm glad to know that the few times that I've gone to a funeral and attempted humor, I wasn't necessarily in the wrong. <laughs> no, no, I don't think you are at all. I don't think you are at all. I mean, under the right circumstances. Right, right. right. Of course. You got to read the room a little bit. <laughs> read the room. Just start standing up. and Let me <laughs> tell you something about Shep. <laughs> Just do a roast. <laughs> some people would love that other people uh, would yeah. listen to it <laughs> <laughs> and there's also i think a lot of um a religious component to how we view funerals and services is they have to be they have to be serious you have to be quiet and respectful mm-hmm. but that i don't think that's true for everyone we should just start a new tradition right all right yeah, so let's I mean, agree are... right here and right now <laughs> Whichever one of us dies first, we have a pact. The other two, the other two just throws a a fucking rager, and and that's how we deal with it. All right, I'm okay with this. I'm okay with this pact. Yes, we'll talk about how cool, uh, cool each of us were. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And everybody will have a good time. (laughs) Jess, I I know this is very off topic, but I do talk about you occasionally because I talk about. I talk about 
when we were back in doing our theses and all that kind of fun stuff mm -hmm. and the sort of idea of women not being allowed on stage and mm -hmm. it's such a, a a common conception thrown around and sometimes I throw your name out there and be like, actually, nice. I went to school with this <laughs> scholar and she has some shit to say about it. So, yes, thank you. Isn't it funny, though, that it's that's something that's not even like second guessed. That's like, I guess not funny. It's sad. It's, but like, it's sad that like it's like, oh, yeah, patriarchy. Yeah, that totally makes sense that they didn't let women act. Right. And that's you what know? I thought for so long, too. Yeah, yeah. Oh man, I got into such an argument on Facebook with a um, semi-well-known theater artist who mm. I will not be naming that I shared an article, an interview she did where she had quote-unquote evidence that women were legally banned from performing. And I was like, that's not true. And here is my <laughs> evidence. And she got so mad. And I was <laughs> like, why are you... She was like, she said I was like trying to erase women's voices or something. And I was like, no, no. The, the opposite, maybe? The opposite? Also, like, isn't that how scholarly discourse works? I have evidence. Well, also, I have evidence. Let's weigh right. them against each other. Right, right. And my evidence wasn't just like I found it. I, all of mine pretty much came from other scholars who have done the work before me too. And I just compressed it all into one document. So it was like, it's not like I'm just some nobody coming up with this thing. That was, that was a fun time. <laughs> you, you've never been a nobody. <laughs> oh, that's so nice. Thank you. Go for it, Mike. I, I, I was going to say something smart and unuseful. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to thank Jess for coming better, on the better, podcast. Better thing, yeah. Better thing to say. Um, <laughs> and we tend to end with the same question every time and I don't know why but what is your favorite snack oh man that's a great question potato chips respectable just plain potato chips I mean none of that ripple shit <laughs> <laughs> plain straight up just, potato just chips any dip. specifically just no chips no flavoring just salt just chips, just the purest potato. I oil and salt, <laughs> and that is in potato. That's it. And she, even yeah, though that's it. she's not from Idaho, she's from Iowa. I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> so I know you're not, you know, really living the artistic life anymore, but we always want to give you the opportunity to plug something or someone or a situation or or a website, anything mm -hmm. that you might want to contribute to the world to give a louder voice to. Uh, you could talk about it here for a moment and then we'll go ahead and throw it in our description as well. Or if you don't want to talk to anyone, you could just be like, no, don't reach out to me. I'm good. It could also be like a, uh, a book you recommend, movie, uh, album, anything you like. Yes. So for people who are interested in learning more about end of life care and um, just like we talked about options for after death body disposal <laughs> to describe it. <laughs> Sounds appropriate. Your options. So the book that really got me into it that I mentioned earlier is called Being Mortal by Atul Gawande. A-T-U-L-E, or sorry, A-T-U-L-G-A-W-A-N-D-Y. Um, and then Caitlin, I never remember how to pronounce her name. 
It's D-O-U-G-H-T-Y. She is a um, funeral director in Southern California, and she's written three really incredible books about dying. And they're usually they're usually a little bit funny, too. She also has a YouTube channel called Ask a Mortician. So she, she's she's cool. She's super cool. I love her. Um, she, ha- she also has a book where she did what's called Thano Tourism, which is death tourism, pretty much, where she went around to different countries and she studied their death rituals. And she comprised them into one book. So you can also learn how other countries deal with this, which is usually better than we deal with it. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. So thank you so much for coming on and thank talking you. to us. Yeah, you were you were a fantastic guest and I actually can't wait to edit this episode. It's going to be a fun one. Yay. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thanks Jess for coming on and chatting with us today. And it was a pleasure, even though it was heavy. It was, it was very heavy, but I didn't feel weighted down by it. No, no, not at all. In fact, you know, talking about that today kind of puts me in a mindset of like, what do I want? You know what I mean? When, when I go, and I definitely think that I want to be frozen and shot into space so that if aliens find my body, they can reanimate my corpse and I can tell them all about what life on earth was like. That's what I want. I mean, that sounds freaking awesome. And I think directly leads us to our audience participation. So if this episode has got you thinking in any way, what would be the way you want to end your life if you are lucky enough to make that choice? Oof, that sounded a little bit like, how do you want to die? (laughs) Not how do you want to be handled when you're dead? (laughs) Well, I said it and I'm not going to re-say it. So thanks for the clarification. You know, let's not make it too, too dark, but... (laughs) And if you want to participate and let us know uh, what your position on that is, where can you do that, Shane? You can check us out on the Twitters at act list pod or or you can find us on facebook at facebook.com slash active listeners pod and join in the conversation peace If you like what you hear leave us a rating and if you really like what you hear and you want to support the show go to patreon.com slash active listeners pod and become a patron our theme music it's a trap was created by remodel thanks for listening <laughs>